The Brendan O'Connor Show on RTE Radio 1 with All Care Pharmacy. Discover a team that's always here to support you at All Care, taking care of communities across Ireland. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show and not surprisingly most of the papers today are, are leading with the Garda investigation into the murder of Ashling Murphy. The uh, mail on Sunday has a suspect in quotes at Canal Day prior to killing. Uh, the Sun on Sunday, cops close in on Ashling suspect. The Sunday World, Ashling murdered cops dig up garden. And the Mur has uh, a story about the, the new Ashling suspect. The Sunday Times has DNA of new Ashling murder suspect seized. And then their off lead um, is a piece by Justine McCarthy. Crowds gathered as much in sorrow as anger. And that's it, sorrow and anger, I think. They also have an interesting story on the bottom of the front page of the Sunday Times, which is that more than 400,000 doses of booster vaccines held by Irish family doctors will go out of date over the next two weeks if people do not present themselves for jobs. Um, the Sunday Independent uh, has a closing in on a killer, but their big headline is Zero Tolerance. And this is off the back of Justice Minister Helen McAtee and her new national strategy to tackle domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. Um, the Business Post has uh, gone with a, with, with a different story, um, but I think it is a story that will, uh, that will actually give people a much-needed boost today. So this is um, off the back of an interview that the Business Post has done with David Nabarro of the World Health Organization. And if you know David Nabarro and you, you know him from uh, from the airwaves, he is generally a careful and cautious person about what he says and he could not accuse of being, being over-optimistic, I don't think, or anything. So David Nabarro, who... Um, just a few weeks ago was saying he'd never been more concerned about what lay ahead, is now saying that a more lethal strain is unlikely to become dominant in the future. He says most of us believe that eventually the current uh, COVID-19 coronavirus will become like the common cold. He says Omicron has started this journey. He says it will be a bumpy few months, but he says in countries with high immunisation coverage, the shift towards everyone being calmer about the virus will take place more quickly. So there is a general optimism there, but I think that uh, coming from David Nabarro, I think people will be very heartened by that. Um, my panel this morning, Alison O'Connor is a political commentator with the Irish Examiner. Sam McConkey is an infectious disease specialist and head of the Department of International Health and Tropical Medicine at the RCSI University. And Sheena Cahill is a former president of the Union of Students in Ireland. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Brendan. Um, Alison, going back to the murder of Ashling Murphy, what, what are your thoughts this morning after the, after the few days we've had? Um, I suppose it's more my feelings for starters, Brendan, in terms of that just ever since the news broke, this very heavy feeling um, in my chest um, of just the awfulness of it all, um, that this has been, you know, despite the time that's passed since, it's still sort of the only thing I'm talking about with my friends. Uh, I spend the time at home wondering whether I have the radio or television on and off because I have two young girls and we have spoken about it, but I'm I'm just really sort of... It, it, 
upset at the idea that they're hearing all of this detail. And this is something I've struggled with for quite some time in terms of what do you tell them as a parent about how they should be in the world, uh, entering teenagehood, um, safety, everything from being on a bus to being out on a, a, on a jog. And um, I... Um, I suppose if there is any legacy and I'm sure the last thing that Ashley and Murphy, Murphy's parents would want, uh, they want their daughter alive. Uh, but if there is to be a legacy, it is the discussion that we're having. Uh, my concern in all of this, and this was my concern before this dreadful thing happened, was that so much of what is happening with women and what women want and need to be changed is not being heard by men and that without the allyship of men. And that has been brought into very stark um, reality over the last few days of the the not all, you know, the not all men. Um, but it sounds hackneyed at this stage. It's not all men, but for women and for any woman, it could be any man. And I mean, if you'll bear with me for a moment, one of the things I was thinking about that it's this is not this is not this didn't happen in a vacuum. All of this, there's a continuum. I mean, for me, it is it goes from the mother and baby home, some physiotomy, the Catholic Church, political parties that don't have enough women at higher levels, the individual male politicians who don't help women. It's the IRFU and their treatment of female players. It's the GA Congress being walled to all men. It's the jerks at Port Marnock Golf Club in Dublin who only last year ended a men only membership policy. It's the schools who don't teach proper sex education or discuss consent and the parents who criminally, to my mind, will hand maybe an eight or nine year old boy or girl a mobile phone and particularly for boys with access to porn and not discuss with them what the violence and the misogyny that that, that they will be seeing. It's the media that don't promote women. They don't profile me- female voices of those author- of authority. It's always as victims. I mean, imagine that there's no national newspaper in Ireland that has a, a female editor. It's well, the they, WhatsApp they, groups. Sun, the Irish Sunday Times has. This sorry, excuse me, yeah. nor in Hegarty that there's finally been one. Yes, it's and, the and, WhatsApp. And there was Anne Harris. Before there was that before that. Yeah, but Sunday I mean, we're still speaking yeah. in the singular. That's yeah, one yeah, now. Yeah. It's the WhatsApp groups where men would rather eat their own eyeballs than call out the guy who's who's made a misogynistic post uh, and tell him that that's wrong. It's the bosses who pay women less than men and don't promote them. And it's, as I said, it's the men over the last few days who refuse to take their heads out of their posteriors and are make victims. They're making victims of themselves and refusing to see that women are reaching out their hands and looking for help. And finally, and I could go on all day with this list, it's Article 41.2 of the Irish Constitution that still says a woman's place is in the home. So, you know, I, as I said, you could compa- you could keep going with this list, I'd say, for three days. So it's not, this is not on its own. There's a hell of a lot in there and there's an awful lot of work to do. Do you think there seems to be a sense among uh, some of the women fighting this fight mm. that something might be different this time, that there was more of a sense of men turning up at vigils and more of a sense of men asking, OK, what, what can we do and we're, we're going to do it? Yes, without a doubt. But I still think there aren't, there are so many good men out there. But I think that for a lot of the men, they will stop and they will think. And I say this is not different. It's even for people of colour trying to explain to white people, you know, what their experience Mm. is that you'd say to somebody, but I'm not a racist. And you think, yeah, that's all very well. But what are you doing to help the, the general situation? Are you going out of your way any one little bit at all? So that if you're a man and you say, 
I'm very good to my wife. I have daughters. I bring them to sport. Um, you know, I'm I'm nice to my female colleagues. But do you look around you? Do you think of the disadvantage? Do you think that uh, if you're walking along the street at night and there's a woman in front of you, maybe you should be the one to cross over? So it's it's this idea, I think that, in, and again, maybe in, in fairness to men, if you've never had to stop and think about it, if you're not taught that in schools or at home, that there is this gender divide, that women do feel this sense of threat, that discussing things like consent. And I think this does. I think we have an awful lot. We tie ourselves in knots on this one. Parents who are concerned about uh, even teaching children the proper names for their own body parts when they're young. If we still are caught up in that sort of, sort of place, um, where are we with openly discussing sort of domestic violence and uh, how we need? I mean, this is what Helen McEntee is in both the Sunday Independent and the Mail on Sunday today, talking about the plans that the government have. Um, you know, for this this new policy that they're that they're bringing out, and that that is encouraging. And I suppose, in a way, it will be given even even more impetus as a result of of what's mm. happened. But um, the, I mean, you only need to go back to the Citizens Assembly that reported last year, and it's that initially the domestic, sexual, and gender based violence wasn't even on its agenda. But the, it, it was there were so many submissions to the assembly. They, they they had to. And my final point then is that I've heard a lot of mentions of the Savvy Report in the last few days. Mm-hmm. I wrote about this. I looked it up last night in 2018. And at that time, we were being told there wasn't a need for a second Savvy, you know. And then in 2018, we were told there would be Savvy too. And do you know when it was going to report? Now, that was 2018, but it wouldn't be reporting till 2024. Now, is that urgency or what? So I checked the Central Statistics Office yesterday who are carrying this out. They'll be out in the field in the second half of next year and they'll be reporting by 2023. So that's the that's okay. the state of play on that. OK. By the way, both of us neglected to think of Geraldine Kennedy there as well. Just on a point, but it, absolutely, of, of fact. Brendan. Yeah, but look, but I mean, if be, I was a lot to of say, have texted in, if we were I'd, to I'd say, to no, no, but I mean, if we were to be discussing yeah. male editors, you know, we could be. How long would we be sitting here? I understand that's, that's completely, but I just wanted to be fair to Geraldine yeah. Kennedy as well, but not to absolutely. take away from any of what you've said there. But I think that yeah. it, there were a lot of people texting in, but equally, a lot of people texting in saying, "Well said, Alison O'Connor." There's a list to get working on, as one person says, and a lot of people just a few texts there just saying, thank you, Alison O'Connor. Sheena, Mm -hmm. your thoughts? Got the studios very heavy now this morning, isn't it? And um, uh, rightly so. Um, Rightly so. I think Alison has um, rightly also um, started the list that so many of us are intimately familiar with. Uh, around women's public role in society and and indeed the the lack of recognition and and representation there, but also the personal uh, and the domestic um, uh, impact of of this conversation. Um, You know, I'm I feel since Wednesday, I've just felt this hurt and this upset and this dread um, and this anger, Brendan, I feel I feel angry. And I think a lot of people listening Think, may think that anger is the wrong emotion right now because um, it is a sadness and it is a mourning that we feel for Ashling Murphy, M- Murphy's family um, and um, all who knew and loved her in, in Tullamore and in the Midlands. Um, but I think anger is justified. 
I think anger is needed right now. And you mentioned earlier the you know, the women who fight this fight around, you know, feminism and those issues that, that Alison referenced. But actually, every woman who's, who gets up in the morning and stands outside her own home or indeed some of them in it, they're fighting a fight because every time we make a decision to leave the house, um, we are making decision based on lists of safety protocols that we consciously or unconsciously abide by. And I think that's one of the things that's most harrowing about the conversation over the last few days is that some of the reaction has been, you know, considering the scale, um, has looked at small things we could do to protect ourselves better um, as women, rather than looking at what men can do to change their behaviour towards women to actually affect lasting change. Because personal devices and an app would not have saved Ashling Murphy's life. And I'm sure there are a lot of things in the really important strategy that's coming out that Helen McEntee has referred to that wouldn't have saved Ashling Murphy's life. But there are things, there is a foundation upon which our culture exists at the moment um, that values certain types of aggressive male behaviour from lewd comments in WhatsApp groups to catcalling on the streets that allows this kind of um, lack of respect towards women to continue. And I think we all have a part to play, but particularly men in calling that out and actually changing because I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the conversation around this, this watershed moment that's been spoken about uh, this week. And I'm afraid of that word. I'm afraid of watershed because I think when national tragedies like this happen, we have a couple of days of intense media focus, which is incredibly important. And then we move on. Mm. And I think um, I'm incredibly lucky. Yesterday, I got a call from my own dad who asked me, what did I think of what was going on? How did I, how did I feel about it? And my mum was there too and they put on the speakerphone. But I'm not convinced that um, every person who needs to get that call this weekend has gotten it. So I suppose from my perspective, I would ask every single parent, every brother um, to call uh, one another call members of your family and actually have a conversation about okay. this this weekend. Okay. Okay. Well Thanks, Sheena. Sam, anything you'd like to say at this point? Yeah, thanks, Brent. I suppose at an emotional level, um, this this sort of leaves us in almost speechless, cold, seething anger, in my view. And that has very much dominated, um, you know, the last, last few days. Um, I admire, you know, the many folk um, who've spoke into this situation from our president, uh, yourself in the, in the paper and uh, the young lady from Midlands Radio, Ellen Burke, was, was speaking eloquently um, early on. Um, and I, I suppose I feel a bit hopeless. You know, we're here with a country that's 100 years old and this is the world we've created that that, that has, has these things happening. And then I, I suppose part of me is very future focused, very focused on kind of what you might call scientific driven public policy. What, what can okay. we do differently? Yeah, go on. So, I mean, my, my view is, you know, to be radical and, and, and I accept this right, but, you know, you need 12 lessons to, to learn to drive a car. You need a license to drive a car. You need to do a test. Do we need some sort of uh, almost qualifications, licensing education to... to you know, for men to, to go out into the, the social sp- sphere. Now, people would say, is that an impingement on our rights of free movement? And I've obviously evolving through this through COVID, but as we've just heard, many women feel their ability to free move is really restricted because of, of danger. Uh, so I think we need to think of new 
uh, ways of doing things. The same old, same old won't work. I'm delighted to hear the government have, have this uh, policy on domestic violence, um, you know, already well developed and hopefully coming out in March. I, I think mixed schools is important. I think mixed preschools. I think just as our primary school teachers and, and preschool teachers are teaching our little ones, you know, not to bite each other and not, uh, we also need right from very young age respect for uh, each other as as an integral part of of what we can do as a as a department of education. Yeah, to I think help us. I think re- respect is key here, guys, isn't it? And that, it's a, it's a it's a cliche to say, but that is it. It's teaching people people to, boys to respect girls from a very early age. Um, th- there's a a, a lot of. Uh, fine pieces uh, today in the paper. Sheena, you picked out a piece by Nisha Dolan, which is a little bit edgier than than uh, some of the conversation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose it, it kind of speaks to that anger that I was talking about earlier and, you know, what are, what are we supposed to be feeling right now or how are we supposed to um, explain how we're feeling? Um Nisha, the subline to the article, I think, makes the point well. It says, if women's safety was was valued, respect would not be something we had to earn through our behaviour. And she follows that up with um, saying that, obviously, in response to Ashling's death, the Taoiseach uh, claimed during the week, um, quote, women's safety and security is a core value of our society, unquote. And Nisha follows that with, if that were so, respect would not be something we have to earn. Um, there, that there's how the world is and there's how the world should be and pragmatically she does as much as she can to stay on the right side of those expectations so what she's talking about is that from the early days of even being in secondary school and having her skirt decided upon by a teacher as to whether it was the appropriate length um, to be at school um, we are I suppose told as young women um, that you know how we behave in society, how we put our, how we represent ourselves, how we dress, um, actually will impact how men see and treat us and value us, and that is fundamentally wrong. Um, there is generational gendered trauma going on here, and it's not just this generation. By that I mean from and and obviously everything from mother and baby homes beyond uh, was referenced by Alison earlier. Um, but what Nisha is getting at here, I think, is that, you know, there is something fundamentally wrong with how we position women in society, how we expect them to behave and how we expect them to respond, even at a time like this, um, you know, with decorum, with, you know, just with feeling an emotion of sadness, but no anger. And I think that it's really important that we talk about this anger and we talk about how frustrated we are that 50 percent of the population don't seem like they've been listening to the other 50 percent. Okay. Brendan, that that this sort of raises an interesting issue for me that I haven't just been talk, thinking about over the last few days. I mean, I, I feel there are times over the last few days that I felt so angry I could spit, mm. you know, or then I could cry. And I've been close to tears on a number of occasions. And yet, as I've, I, I said to a friend of mine about two years ago, I said... I said, I thought, think it would be interesting to write a book on where men are in all of this, where we could, how do we, how is best to approach men? What do they really think? That unless we have, so taking the more pragmatic approach, that un, until you kind of do your baseline survey um, and, and find out what is going on, that only then that, you know, do men feel incredibly threatened? Um, by by um, by the notion of women being more equal, 
what do men think when they're in the pub and they're not the sort of guy who will make a derogatory remark about a woman. But there's one or two lads in their group who, who do it regularly. They don't call them out. Why wouldn't they? What would happen if they did? Um, you know, why uh, why they are happy to allow a situation to exist where they know that they get more money than somebody doing the same the same job. I mean, even as I put those questions now, it seems like the, you know, it's about ceding power. It's about why would I say, you know, so-and-so should, should be getting as much money as I am. You know, it, there is all this sort of power dynamic and the, the, un, the unconscious bias. And I think the unconscious bias part of it actually is a really important part of what needs to, to be mm-hmm. there in the in the education. So I do think that uh, on one hand, uh, some of the stuff I've heard from men and seen on social media, particularly in the last few days, has just enraged me. But then I'm trying to talk myself down and say, come on, that's not going to get us where we need we need to be Un- until we talk calmly and be more pragmatic about it. The situation is not you're not going to drag people kicking and screaming. Men will not be dragged kicking and screaming uh, to improving the situation. That's not going to work. OK. Um, just before we go on, Alison, you, 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 Sam and as well wanted to mention, but Alison, you might mention Justine McCarthy has a very yeah. powerful piece on the front page of the Sunday Times. Yes, she cert- she certainly does, and she's she's writing about um, about it inside in her column as well. But she's in in um, in Dunleary, and uh, we're at the at a, at a protest, and she spoke about hundreds of people humming softly along to to music that was playing, some weeping, as three musicians from Ashling's Cultus community played "Danny Boy." And she says, among them were Simon and Sarah Kenny from Dawkey. And I suppose this resonated with me, uh, as I mentioned, as a parent of, of two girls with their teenage daughter and two primary school sons. I want them to start their lives knowing it is completely unacceptable to ever hit, mistreat or abuse a woman, said Simon, echoing many comments made since Ashling's death. And then she also quotes, Justin also quotes uh, the Fine Gael TD, Jennifer Carroll McNeil. And she was at the vigil and she said she intended to read figures on assaults against women into the doll record every every week. And I think, again, that's an interesting point because I've I've written columns on this in the past where there's been particular weeks or 10 days where mm. it seems every two or three days there's a court case where a woman was murdered or, you know, horribly assaulted. And we're just kind of inured to it, really, and that you have to take the time to... Um, uh, to do something like that, to, 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 to highlight the fact that this is actually not OK, mm-hmm. you know, that this is something that we need to be, that we need to be more outraged about. Yeah, and, um, you know, we can yeah. have a, the, the broad conversations about changing culture and everything, mm-hmm. but actually changing culture comes down to dull fact upon fact mm. upon fact upon Jennifer I mean, can I ask you? reminding people yeah. that this is happening it's about changing all those small little things acknowledging yeah. all those things like culture is actually changed by detail I, w- I yeah. would believe but can I and, ask you yeah. as, a, yeah. as a male yeah. of a species why you think so many men have got so offended in the wake of such an atrocity that at women at women saying look guys we need change here you see, that's a very tricky question for me because mm. the first thing I'm going to say to you, which I don't think will be a satisfactory answer for mm. you, is that I don't think the men I know are offended. I actually think that 
as far as I can see, they're listening again and listening with with fresh ears. And they're, if they weren't, there have been a few moments like this recently that where I think did cause men to think mm. anew. And I think if they didn't hear at that time, I think a lot more are hearing at this time. But that's not that's not a good enough answer for you. I'm mm. conscious because a does it mean that we're not having the conversations we should be having? And B, am I falling into the trap of thinking, well, it's not me and it's not my mm. friends? Mm. You see, some gorgeous, you know? some gorgeous men that I know um, are are still feel a little bit like that, and that's what that's what but, but, I find quite this overwhelming. Is it. And but I think mm. I, I think like without getting meta on it. I think that men are actually trying to question that in themselves mm. as well, you know. So I, I think, I suppose my answer is there's there, there's work to be You know, this done, may seem you know? an odd thing to introduce this time, but uh, having uh, written um, a book about the abortion referendum and the, the success of the Yes campaign and how people, it, it's interesting actually, people couldn't even speak about, they didn't know how to speak about the issue of abortion. They were very worried about women, Irish women, but they didn't even know, but they were also worried about the idea of, of, of abortion being allowed on Irish soil. But it's how the, the, how the campaign went about through that research of speaking to those people, finding, helping them to find a way to talk about it and then helping them to come to a yeah. Now, there'd be a hell of a lot of people out there, I realise, who, who have uh, who have may have an opposing view on abortion. But I'm just saying there are ways of doing this and ways, again, getting back to what I'm saying to you, that it's, you're not going to help anyone if you try to drag somebody kicking and screaming, that there are ways that I th- wish that I hope the government will look at in terms of how they're going to lead this conversation and lead the education. Yeah, and I actually think that I think that women over the last few days have done as much as they could not to seem like they're attacking men or be on the defensive. And, and it, it's echoed in what you were saying there, Sheena, is that like women and you said it, I think, Alison, about reaching out the hand. I think women are doing this as delicately as they can with men and saying we need you. I don't think that they're they're attacking them. So I don't know um, yeah. what else what else they can do, you know, Um Okay, you know what? We we'll uh, we'll take a break now. Alison O'Connor, Sam McConkey, and Sheena Cal uh, staying with us. There are two things I want to say before we take a break. One is that there is uh, the editor of the Irish Daily Mirror, and and I should have known this. I apologise for that. Is a female. It's uh, Demelza de Burka, and uh, also I want to point out that. Port Marnock Golf Club is now allowing uh, women members. I'm ha- happy to clarify Isn't it that. Great. Look, oh, it's great. Twenty twenty two. Get over yourself. But, but look, you can call or it is the tyranny. You can call it the tyranny of fact, but we 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 need to uh, we yes, facts I, need I, to be I, sacred I, I, around I said here. That. So I we, said it was only last year mm. that they changed it. Okay, and, and I'm I can getting see they, another. I, I, you know, maybe a little bit of retraining needed there. And I'm getting another uh, message here to say that Sylvia Pownall, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is the editor of the Irish Sunday Mirror. So happy to uh, clarify all those things. All ones and ones I, of them, Brenda. I don't, yeah. Yes, and I don't think it takes away anything from the substance of what anyone has has has, has said, but happy to, to be absolutely clear on the facts there. Let's take the break. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. I'm here with Alison O'Connor, Sheena Cahill and Sam McConkie. 
And uh, I just want to say to you, Alison O'Connor, that that list you read out um, it has caused a huge response. A lot of people have a lot of other uh, things they would like to add to that list. Maybe you need to start keeping a, yeah. a rolling list there. Some people taking issue with your uh, with with your position on different sporting organisations and everything, as is their right. But um, I think that list has certainly made people think um and i suppose look change is is, is gradual and we can only hope well i knew i knew like the list was by no means definitive but i didn't yeah, know at what yeah. point you'd interrupt me so i had to <laughs> <laughs> she had pages and pages and pages do you think i was going to interrupt your list today uh, but i'll tell you what a list like that is what makes up the texture of irish life isn't it they are all the things that are the texture of our lives now look um the, I think the, the, the story on the Sunday Business Post uh, today is important in, in a different way uh, because really uh, I think people ha- have been on the floor anyway uh, recently and um, I think there, people have a lot of regard for some reason for David Navarro in this country. I'd say if they did those things they do about Tony Holder and getting five out of ten above the politicians. David Navarro, he's such a charming kind of smoothie and stuff as well, but great authority. Sam, um, this sounds like very, very good news from a man who's normally very cautious. Uh, Yeah, I I was delighted to see it, uh, you know, and its prominence it's got. What he's he's really saying is that uh, obviously we're, we're going through an Omicron fifth wave, if you like, in Ireland right now. And he's really looking forward and saying... What are the future of COVID going to be like? And we, we've talked about it becoming endemic, uh, you know, sort of like the common cold or like a flu and look forward, obviously, to when that will happen. He's saying that uh, he doesn't expect another horrible alpha wave or delta wave to sweep through countries like Ireland where we're heavily vaccinated. He does point out that, you know, Ireland's maybe a bit unique in the way we've dealt with this and we've very, very high levels of vaccination. And that combined with the large amount of infection now with Omicron that we're seeing in Ireland uh, will hopefully protect us from whatever comes in the future. And And Sam, what has changed from the relative pessimism of two weeks ago? I know we had to wait and see how it panned out and everything, but it suddenly feels as if everybody has turned this corner into optimism here. What is it that we, is, is it as simple as the numbers in ICU and that kind of thing? Yeah, so six or eight weeks ago, many of us were saying that the Omicron, while it looked more transmissible, we hoped would not be as pathogenic and cause as much disease and death as previous waves. And now, over the last four weeks of experience, we've seen that that has been the case. This horrible, the technical term, Brenton, is type 1 respiratory failure, but it means really just broken lungs that don't suck in oxygen. That's what we had with the previous COVID, and we're not seeing that in a large way at all okay. with, with this Omicron. And that's and great then, news. Sam, what gives us our confidence that then... You know, like we had heard this theory before about that, that viruses become more infectious, but less lethal because they don't want to kill the host and all that. But then we were told, no, that's not always the case. And they pointed out that, you know, the, the, the that that uh, COVID itself uh, was had evolved to become worse as well. And we were told that, you know, AIDS never got uh, less lethal. And, you know, so I think that uh 
th- th- there still could be a bumpy road, as David Nabarro says. So there could be localised outbreaks of a more lethal uh, variant of it. So, so we do need to create a, a public health infrastructure now in Ireland that prepares us for future pandemics, including another wave of a bad coronavirus one. But what David Nabarro is saying is it's unlikely that those would be so widespread and so sort of ubiquitous as our, our first four waves, so, so that things would be better than they were back in the previous two years. So we're okay. over the worst of it, which of course is, is good news to hear. And okay. I, I agree with what he says and I'm delighted to see it getting prominent. Great. Uh, do, do you agree with uh, Christine Losher, who says in the Sunday Independent that we should have normality back by March? Well, it depends what normality is. I don't think it'll be 2019 normality. Yeah. Certainly those who work in hospital are going to have to test everyone coming in and keep folk who have COVID separately from those who don't because people in hospitals who don't have COVID are very vulnerable to getting it. So certainly in the workplace I'm in, it will be separate. And there may be some restrictions on, you know, wearing masks and some social distancing. So I think it will be a new normal, as we've all famously said. But I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of the restrictions like the eight o'clock closures of of hospitality will finish. I'm hoping there will be certainly widespread outdoor music festivals in the summer, for example, Brenton, which obviously a lot of us would, you know, look forward to. So, So I think there will be a lot of the things that we really value and cherish back normal, but still some out of yeah, OK, OK. Sheena, you were looking at that piece. It's uh, uh, Ali Bracken did it in the Sunday Independent. Covid could run out of steam as soon as March. Yeah, um, wouldn't we all be delighted by that? Like, yeah. it's just it's you know, <laughs> you know, if you've muted COVID on like every platform <laughs> because you don't want to hear anymore, because you'd be you're completely exhausted from the news of it. Um, hearing somebody like Nabarro or any of the other immunologists, you just want to like you know grab them and give them a gold star and just say only you that we want to hear from from yeah, now on yeah. because, um, yeah, like because you're telling us what we want. To yeah, hear. Well, you're telling us what we want to hear. Um, yeah, you'd be exhausted from the whole lot of it. Like for me, like. Um, on Friday night, I went out um, for a couple of pints um, and at 8.01pm, I've never seen the like of it in the local spa or off licence. I mean, a few strobe lights, the whole lot, we would have been in coppers. <laughs> but like, you know, and, and so uh, you, this 8pm thing, I mean, whatever about returning to full normal and, uh, you know, that's all, always my, it's the cautionary tale, I think, uh, over the last 18 months is to be kind of, you'd be afraid of jumping onto any bandwagon that says that we're going to be totally in the clear. But yeah. um I think that there is no, um, if you're looking at uh, this for the next couple of months, we definitely need a plan and we definitely need a, need a plan around hospitality and around the arts. I mean, the idea that, and I, I made a joke there about 8pm closing times and everyone piling into the off licence, it was happening. The, and the only one benefiting from that was the local spa and centra. Um, and realistically, you weren't reducing significant, significant numbers at this stage uh, by an eight o'clock closing time. And it's ruining hospitality and restaurants in particular. So yeah. we need to make a move on that. But the plan needs to be put in place. Like, just keep saying the end of the month and maybe February. Uh, but we need to know, you know, more, with more certainty what that looks like. Because businesses can't plan. And we're looking at people you know, um, you know, uh, losing, uh, you know, uh, colleagues left, right and centre, um, people losing their jobs uh, in effect because there is a lack of plan and we need it now. Yeah, yeah, OK. It strikes me that you might be going drinking in the wrong places. I think you need to get down <laughs> the country from what I hear. <laughs> There'd be no having to go to the spa. Now, Alison, uh, you, you picked out uh, Hugh O'Connell today. There is, There does seem to be a kind of a, a plan here. Government are sharing uh, the optimism and we're hearing... 
so closing time goes back to midnight. Still could be six to a table, table service as for a while. Nightclubs at the end of March, maybe, and and continuing with vaccine passes and stuff. But what what jumped out at you about yeah, it? Yeah, and Hugh gives a good sort of a. I mean, he starts by talking about how what an upbeat mood the Taoiseach seems to have been, you know, seems to be in, and uh, and who can blame him. Um, And he makes the point, case numbers are now no longer the metric by which severity of the COVID-19 situation is being being measured. And I I must say, I find it personally quite discombobulating because we're so used to, I mean, the idea that that the WHO said during the week that more than half of everyone in Europe will get Omicron in the next two months. And yet we're talking about it's still difficult to kind of get used to that, isn't it? And in my own column in the examiner this week, I was saying that... um, you know, you feel this optimism was building and it's the papers are full of it. I mean, it's the, the papers are snakes and ladders today in that there's the absolute low of uh, of what happened in Tullamore. And then there's the brimming optimism of, 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 of that the Omicron wave is over and hopefully the pandemic is. But as I was saying myself on Friday, COVID, there is this sense to paraphrase something else that while we plan, COVID laughs, you know, and you're always there yeah. at the back of your, your mind, um, you know, that, that, that the, the shoe is the other shoe is going to off like I booked a trip myself um, uh, abroad in March with some friends and I you know on one hand I feel just so excited about it and that the time has come but you're just waiting for you know the idea that something that something is going to happen to to stop that so I suppose that's what being in a pandemic teaches you (laughs) there are the highs and the lows Um, but how wonderful to have how wonderful to have this bit of positivity Luke O'Neill just finally makes the point of how much we are benefiting from our vaccination that in the States he was saying because of the low vaccination there 150,000 hospitalizations and 25,000 ICU admissions there last week and nearly 3,000 deaths and that the majority of those could have been prevented by vaccines and boosters. So, you know, that really does go to show how much we've benefited from the vaccines. Absolutely. OK, um, there was, of course, breaking news overnight on Novak Djokovic. So Catherine Murray, sports journalist and presenter with ABC in Melbourne, is on the line. Catherine, uh, good morning, evening. How are you? How are you, Brendan? Uh, so, Catherine, um, Djokovic was appealing the cancellation of his visa kind of again last night and he lost. Bring us through, will you, what happened in the court? Well, today, Brendan, the court and the judge O'Callaghan upheld the immigration minister, Alex Hawke's decision to cancel Novak Djokovic's visa for the second time. This has been an epic saga. It's hard to believe that Novak Djokovic arrived in Australia 11 days ago. For that initial... It's the longest 11 days, yeah. I can remember. Epic saga, right. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it unbelievable? Like I've in the meantime, since he was at the airport, I've had a day out in Cavan. I've come back to Australia and I've been <laughs> here for more than a week now. And, and you haven't got yourself insane. in any trouble with the border force, no? I'm happy to report that I walked right through with my international COVID-19 vaccine cert and my cabin booster, which I'm very <laughs> grateful for. Okay, so, well done. But hard to believe, Brendan, what's happened. So this is the second cancellation of his visa. But he has said that he accepts this decision. So he's cooperating. He is right now 
at the airport. He's left the lounge. His flight is literally due to take off as we speak. He's going back to Dubai in what is an unbelievable situation. So the Australian Open starts tomorrow and today's hearing went so long and the judge needed time to deliberate to the point that they couldn't hold on releasing the schedule for tomorrow any longer. And now the reason, Brendan, the Australian Open organisers didn't want to release the order of play for tomorrow is because after the order of play is released, you can't reseed the tournament. And of course, he was the nine-time Australian Open champion, the number one seed. So now he's gone and we have lucky loser Salvatore Caruso comes into the draw. He's Italian and he is ranked 150 in the world. He finds himself in the men's draw. Wow, okay. Um, Listen, I gather the, the, the discussion in court turned into an argument back and forth about whether Novak Djokovic is anti-vax or not. Was that was that kind of what it came down to? That's exactly right. So in this case, which, by the way, wasn't about what happened with Border Force, that was the last hearing where Novak Djokovic had his visa cancellation quashed because the judge found that he hadn't had procedural fairness. This was a very different hearing. So the immigration minister using his discretionary powers to cancel a visa and the government's legal team were arguing that Djokovic staying in the country and playing at the Australian Open and potentially winning his 10th Australian Open could stir up anti-vax sentiment. They also thought it could cause civil unrest. Meanwhile, Djokovic's legal team said that his views had been misrepresented and they took particular issue with the fact the government's legal team kept referring to a BBC article that alleged Djokovic was anti-vaccines and that was actually an article that was published before vaccines existed. So They're also saying, Brendan, and they were arguing that it could be the opposite of what the government is saying, that if he's sent home, that could stir up anti-vaccination sentiment. That could cause unrest. And we're yet to see if that's the case. That hasn't happened so far, but he is literally just leaving the country as we talk. This is bonkers, isn't it? What's the feeling in 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 uh, in Australia now? How how has the the final result been received? It's hard to say, Brendan. You know, I think you just summarised it really well there. This is bonkers. This has been like the most crazy reality <laughs> TV show I've ever witnessed, and public opinion keeps swinging. So remember, he got that initial government exemption and he posted that picture with his luggage saying he couldn't wait to play at the Australian Open. There was huge anger that he was going to be allowed to come into the country unvaccinated. Then when he was detained at an immigration hotel, people started to feel a bit sorry for him. At least some people did. Then we had the next twist in the saga when it was revealed He had a positive PCR test and he went to an interview with a journalist with a French newspaper knowing he was positive. He claims to have been positive. We still don't have answers to so many things. Then really, Brendan, it's just been a sense of disbelief that it's got to this, that it's 
that it's kept going. Now, there are going to be a lot of people who are really happy. They just want them out. Then there's a lot of people who are really sad. Like, I'm I'm quite sad that it's come to this, that in a week, this is the best time of the year in Melbourne, the Australian Open. I think it's the best event in the world. And for example, Brendan, the world number one in women's tennis, Ash Barty is Australian. We haven't heard a word about her this week. She won a tournament last weekend. She's in red hot form. Rafael Nadal won a title. He's just coming back from a foot injury. He had covid we're just not talking about tennis. So, and so, I think the, so that's hopefully, sad. the focus gets quickly back to the actual uh, sport now and tennis. Okay, listen, Catherine Murphy, thank you very, very much for that. Now, unless somebody in the panel has a burning desire to say something in support of Novak Djokovic, I'm going to, and I'll take that silence as a cue to take a break. <laughs> Text 51551. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back, Alison O'Connor, Sheena Cahill and Sam McConkie uh, still with me. I'm going to read this brief email uh, lest we all lose the run of ourselves. This is from Aidan, right? Brendan, please do not push the myth that Omicron is just like a bad cold. I got it and six weeks later I cannot go for a short walk. I cannot do lots of things I could do before. We need to stop pretending this is over. And certainly I think anyone thinking, oh, sure, I'll grab myself a bit of Omicron and move on. It's not working out like that for Mm -hmm. everybody. It's not that straightforward. Uh, Now, Sheena, um, there's a piece you wanted to mention in the Sunday Indo today about um, council houses lying empty. Yeah, it's on page 10 of The Independent, um, um, running with 4,000 vacant properties um, uh, 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 by local authorities. And I suppose that the question, of course, here being in response to the Oireachtas Parliamentary Budget Office's report uh, announcing news that was to no one, but I suppose in more stark in more stark language, which was that housing um, at the moment is severely unaffordable. That was the phrase used by our own Oireachtas' uh, Parliamentary Budget Office report during the week and of course it, it, it that's on the back of again ESRI, uh, ESRI report and then reports after reports from Threshold etc saying the same thing for the last how many years um, and I say that uh, as someone who is 29 I um, I am earning a wage I'm very lucky to be to be in a permanent position um, my fiancé is in, is in a similar position and we're both working um, but we're we're not even in the market we're just not. We're we're the like we're one of those young couples that I see like every day now in the papers talking about how they can't even consider getting in onto the this kind of mythical property ladder that we love so much in Ireland, um, because we're paying you know so much out in rent um, that we're you, you know it's unfathomable at this point for us um, to to have our own home, um, and that's just I mean it's really depressing. It's really frustrating, um, and I suppose the, the reason why this uh, this this piece in the Independent is important to at least consider is is that it's lo- what it's doing is uh, looking at uh, the fact that across the local authority system there's quite a significant number of vacant properties, um, and I think that it's it's certainly not a silver bullet, but I think one of the big issues that we have here and the Simon community and indeed Threshold um, you know, weigh in on this argument as well about this, this this amount of vacant housing while not only the couples like ourselves but also just basic homelessness, people who are who are not affo- able to afford their mortgages or are being shoved out of the property market on that end. Yeah. Um, 
are looking at these vacant houses and saying, you know, why are they still there? And, and we should say, in fairness to council, that there will be a number of houses vacant at any one time. Absolutely, for, because of turnover, turnover and all of that. But um, the percentage seems to be very high and it does seem to be taking 32 weeks to turn yeah, over so you're looking at Yeah, you're looking at an approximate turnover time between houses move, moving between tenants of local authorities uh, to be, as you said, 32 weeks. Um, you know, there is a concern there that there's quite a number of houses uh, that are of older stock and, you know, they need energy upgrades all of that kind of stuff but we all know that should not take 32 weeks to change yeah, yeah. and um, you know even with the co- you know other cost implications um, you know it's it's looking at around 19,000 on average to bring those um, those the, like say one house to be a standard of use to move to the next tenant um, so you've got time and you've got costs there that are causing problems um, but that needs to get better and, um, you know, it's not moving fast enough. Um, but also I thought just a, a quick one from yesterday. Um, there was a piece uh, by Frank MacDonald in the Irish um, Times and he made the point that there is, you know, there was some really, um, and, and it's something I wouldn't have really been aware of and I'm certainly not a housing expert, but, you know, the the, the move in, I suppose, policy uh, where um, on board Planola and indeed kind of this kind of ministerial order um, type of thing, came in um, under Alan Kelly in 2015, which basically took a lot of the power away around uh, what goes goes up in local authority areas, away from the local local authorities, away from the um, elected and decided upon uh, local um, development plans and into the hands of onboard Planala and um, in, in, into the hands of uh, often a housing minister with regard to what kind of stock was being um, agreed to uh, on the basis of planning permission in those areas. And what this led to was a significant change since 2015 about the kind of appropriateness of the properties like apartments, the sizing, 12, yeah. 12 square metres being appropriate for, for, for some of these locations. Yeah. Uh, that's since 2015. So not only have has stock kind of is, is crap, but also what we're building is a bit crap too. And that's okay. just really concerning yeah. for anyone who's looking to get onto the property market. Yeah, I thought the most depressing thing about last week was when that budgetary oversight report came out. It's not that there are young people struggling to buy houses anymore. It's that so many young people will tell you, I don't believe I'll ever get one. And that's a really dangerous position yeah. to have a generation in, isn't it? Listen, there's loads going on today. So unfortunately, we're going to bounce along from this because we do need to uh, let's check in with London, obviously all over the papers again today as more reports of parties emerge from Downing Street uh, people starting to wonder is it now finally coming close to the end for Boris Johnson I'm joined now by Enda Brady Sky News reporter good morning Enda good morning Brendan good to speak to you again so uh, the wine time Fridays is, is, is the latest number 10 sounds like a great place to work Yes, um, I think you'll see a lot changing this week. There's going to be a big raft of announcements. I think you'll see a ban on alcohol uh, and this whole drinking culture inside Number 10. He's trying to change everything, all part of what Boris Johnson, according to the papers today, is calling Operation Save Big Dog. So he wants to ring fence himself. I think there'll be some departures this week, possibly members of staff from Downing Street. Um, all the whispers in Westminster are that he's taking no responsibility whatsoever for the partying and he's blaming his staff. So, so operation says big dog there. underway. And, and it also looks like he's going he's gonna to basically end pandemic restrictions again to save the big dog, yeah? 
so uh, if you look at the list, he's got uh, quite a, a few populist measures to be announced this week. He's going to lift all the remaining COVID restrictions on January 26th. He's going to ban alcohol and this drinking culture in, in Downing Street. The BBC licence fee will be frozen for two years. That will help the cost of living. And the military are going to be given control of the battle to stop illegal migrants in the channel. So a raft of policy announcements, but I think Boris Johnson's big problem is yeah. it takes 54 letters from his MPs to go to Graham Brady, who runs the 1922 committee, which ultimately will trigger a leadership election. 54 is the magic number. Um, by my count, 35 letters have gone in. I see so that 19 and, more uh, this week and we and have I, a leadership election. Yeah, and I hear as well that a lot of them are going to wait for the Sue Gray report, but they know what it's going to say, it'll lay out the facts, but they're, they're, they're just out of propriety not putting in their letters until after that happens. So we could see a bunch of letters at that stage, couldn't we? Yeah, precisely. So Sue Gray is a career civil servant. She's a Whitehall Mandarin. Her remit is quite narrow. It's to establish the facts. So I don't think she will be scathing in her comments about Boris Johnson, but she will be asked to lay out, you know, what happened, okay. when it happened, and who was there. And it will be left to the MPs then to decide whether they want to continue with a man who many of them are now seeing as an electoral liability. OK, Ender Brady of Sky News, thanks a million. Talk to you soon. Um, Alison, did, did, in your expert opinion now, you'd Gimlet Eye, is he gone? It's a bit like saying, like, is is the pandemic gone? You're, Boris really has to be gone before. There's the most fabulous quote in the Sunday Times where they actually are talking about, as well as Operation Save Big Dog, there's Operation Red Meat. Um, so Boris, this is one MP anonymously quoted, Boris is preparing to lay down the lives of his staff to save his own. It will be the night of the long scapegoats. And I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Uh, but I mean, I, I am stunned that he's still there. It just makes you wonder how low the standards um, have gone, the level of expectation over there about what people expect from their leaders. And it's, it is really difficult to see him being, being there for much longer. What's saving him is the idea that uh, there's no clear successor and that no successor would necessarily want to come in right at this moment. It would suit people better, maybe uh, t- more towards the end of the summer. Sam, your brief thoughts on this finally? I, I, I think there's a lesson learned in, in different types of apologies here, Brandon. What we've heard Boris Johnson yeah. I apologise for how you feel. He has said that. But there's no uh, sense of him saying, I apologise for what I did. I apologise for making a decision to have parties, social practices. It was alcohol in my house in the evening. I was wrong to do that. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry that that upset your feelings. And I will change my ways in the future to do something differently. He hasn't done that sort yeah, of proper be, be, apology. Because, you. because, Sam, if you've been listening, it's not his fault. It's all those crazy <laughs> young people working in, in number 10. It's in his Appar- house, apparently Brendan. Don't, it's his house. Apparently, the, the holy grail they're all looking for now is parties in, in the flat or parties at checkers. And a lot of people Imagine sniffing around that. Imagine the Taoiseach yeah. here, you'd probably be fired for caffeine. I mean, well, well, no, we have we at 20 seconds to 12. We have our own situation here. But we don't have time to get into well, it now. Indeed, but listen, indeed. thank you all very much. Alison O'Connor, Sam McConkey and Sheena Cahill. And now we're just coming up to 12 noon and we'll go to the newsroom and Kate Egan.